mighty name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. As we begin each service, I'd like to be able to draw your attention that we are a Bible-believing church. Uh, we currently are unaffiliated, but we are not ashamed to be able to name that we are Bible-believing. Uh, each time you come to church, you will find that the word will be opened. The music is going to be in concert with the scriptures, with the gospel message. And uh, because of it, we believe that we are changed. If you look at the list, we also believe that we should have an effect regionally, not just locally. And uh, we also believe that we should not forsake worship as our music uh, leaders just be able to share it with us uh, from from. From the scriptures that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together but to be able to come and to meet with the living and true god is quite a privilege now if you could turn in your bibles we're going to be turning to the to the book of ecclesiastes uh, it is found um, on page 710 in your pew bibles let us reverently attend to the public reading of god's inerrant infallible Word as it was given in the originals. We'll be looking at verse 2 of chapter 10. The scripture says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. It's a simple text. Uh, let me read that again for you. This is Solomon writing, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. A fool's heart to the left. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word and make it an effectual means of salvation. I pray that we might, as, uh, as we've already asked, that we might be more like Jesus for having spent time with you. I pray that our faith may be strengthened and I pray that doubts would be removed that we would enjoy the sweet communion that is made possible because of the peace with God that Jesus secured at Calvary's cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes. Is it your favorite book? Well, it, it probably is not mostly young people's favorite book. I think uh, they would definitely go to another place. Um, when Solomon was a young man, he didn't write the same way as he did in Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Solomon, and let me tell you that it is very poetic and picturesque, uh, but it's filled with a lot of love, the love song. Uh, but Solomon ended up growing up. He couldn't stay young, and uh, when he was somebody about my age, the next thing you realize, he was writing the Proverbs, giving us those nuggets of truth uh, in couplets, most of them he says it, and then he says it again to drive the point home. There's 31 Proverbs. But the book of Ecclesiastes was written when he was an old man, when he had lived life. And you've heard it a few times, but it is very interesting how perspective may change. The text that we find in chapter 10 is towards the end of the book. There's only 12 chapters. So when you realize that he's telling us these things, uh, he's coming to an end uh, to the things that God has given for him to be able to communicate these words of an old man. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. There was a, uh, a game that used to be played. I know when I was a school teacher, we used it to try to get control of the kids. And it was called Simon Says. 
And if Simon would say this, then you were supposed to do what Simon says, right? And, uh, and the way that you would be able to stay in the game is if you did everything the way Simon said, and uh, you just didn't do the other things that somebody else would have said. Well, after studying the Word of God, I'd rather play the game Solomon says. Because when Solomon says something, he is giving us truth and wisdom and insight that uh, there was none equal to him in the Old Testament era. In fact, he, he uses the term over and over again that there was none in Jerusalem before him with this kind of wisdom. Now we know there was another that came after some 1,000 years later when Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, manifested himself there in Jerusalem and showed the wisdom of God. He just didn't declare it. Solomon says, if you think about Solomon... There's a lot of people that haven't been able to do what Solomon says. If I turned you back to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, everybody may have realized that when you start there in, in the beginning, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Where you start is a, is a relationship with God. And this fear is not just uh, one that you're afraid of him, but it is a fear of reverence and awe. Today on Be Still Sunday, there is this sense that we need to have a fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom and instruction. If you just turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 3, one of my favorite verses, Solomon then goes on to say that if you have this fear of God, you need to rest in God. You need to trust in Him. Not just partially, but totally. And one of the things that should guide you in your decisions of life is trust in the Lord with all your what? That's, that wraps up everything. With all your heart. And the alternative, if you don't trust in the Lord, it is to trust in yourself, to lean on your own thoughts and your own understanding. Sadly, since people don't do what Solomon says, a lot of people have ignored the trusting in God with all their heart, and they have leaned on their own understanding. And in our culture today, doubt is abounding. Because when people lean on their own understanding, they don't get the foundation. They don't stand on the rock. But they are, as the book of James says, they're tossed to and fro with every wind. Or as you might see, it's they go with whatever is liked on social media. They'll go with whatever seems to be popular from the voices that they tend to listen to. Modern statistics are very alarming in our culture, revealing that people that are relying on their own understanding are are not enjoying Christianity, and they're certainly not enjoying Christ. Even within the last decade and a half, the decline in our community has been noticeable. The Pew Research has told us that it used to be in 2010, about the same time that I came up to Delaware, uh, the people who would identify with Christianity was about 77%. And about the end of that decade, about at the end of 2019, the statistics had revealed that the people now are about 65% identifying as Christian. What has happened? Why has there been a 12% decrease? This doubting of God and of God's grace, and especially of the institution that God ordained as his church, the ecclesia, is statistically saddening for us. Many of us can name people who used to be a part of the church who aren't anymore. They have been people that have written books, 
ministered to youth. They've led some singing, even had concerts, and they've even filled the pulpit. You can name some of the names. The one that kind of still sticks to my mind is the guy who was trying to teach the youth culture to be chaste and to be uh, pure, and he told, told people to kiss dating goodbye, and it wasn't long after that he kissed Christianity goodbye. What has happened? There is a category that while Christian, but people are not identifying with Christianity, they're identifying with a new group called the nuns. Now, this is not a Catholic convent uh, made up of N-U-Ns. This is N-O-N-E-S. And the numbers in America, I think, are statistically saying that about 30% of our population identify with none of the above. No religion at all. One-fifth of our population are religiously unaffiliated today. It's the highest percentages ever seen. The scene has been changing. And what has been happening? And has it been happening to you? Has doubt crept up in your soul? Have you been inclined to have to compromise because of some of the loved ones, some of the people you interact with, whether they actually be family members or neighbors or even people that have attended church with you? Solomon says some things today that are nothing new under the sun. He's famous for that line, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's lived a few days. He's lived a few days under the sun. And that's why he gives us this testimony. If you follow along with the text in chapter 10, uh, he ends, or chapter 9, leading up to this, he says, wisdom... Uh, in verse 11, I just want to read a few verses. And again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen upon them all. And what, Paul is, or what, what Solomon is saying is that, hey, things don't always look like they seem. It looks like this one is going to win, but they don't always win. It looks like this one is going to be able to take care of himself and have enough food, but it doesn't always work out that way. He says, this one looks really smart, but they end up making some dumb decisions. He says, time and chance happen to them all. And then he goes on to explain about how time and chance happen upon people like you and me. In verse 13 of that, of that chapter 9, right before he gets to our text, he says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed like a good example. He said, it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it to besiege it, building great siege works against it. But inside the little city was found a poor wise man. So he describes this situation where you have a city almost like, you want to say Lewis or something like that, and, uh, and, and it's just a small town, and there's a great army that's coming with a king to besiege it. But there was found somebody with wisdom in the town. And with that wisdom, they came up with a defense, with a way of, of, of pushing back all these attacks. And it says at the end of verse 15, yet no one remembered that poor man. Did you notice what word was missing? The wise poor man. People are so easily forgetting the things that they should not forget. 
And he says, so I say that wisdom is better than might in verse 16. And, and right before the end in verse 18, he says, wisdom is better than weapons of war. He says, my goodness, if you get the vision of wisdom, it is so much better than what the other things that the world might think you need to have. And that's why he says at the end of verse 18, but one sinner, but one sinner can destroy so much. That's why our text comes in, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. If I started with chapter 10, you guys would have already been turned off because the whole idea here he's saying is that if you have a fly that dies and it gets inside the perfume bottle, guess what happens to perfume? It's not worth putting on anymore because you'll just smell like dead flies. And who wants to smell like a dead fly? And he's been in using this, wisdom is better than all these things. He says, but the contrary to wisdom is somebody that's a sinner that undoes things, that, that destroys, that unravels. Hence the picture on the front of the bulletin is the picture of, of a person that's a Christian. And if you pull the string, they might unravel because they don't quite have a strong foundation Things are not tied up with them. And that's why he says, it with, if this little folly takes place, he said, dead flies can ruin the perfumer's ointment. So a little of foolishness or folly can undo a lot of wisdom. And that's where we get our statement today. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool to the left. There are two obvious insights in this text, and if you're following along, you can see them too. The commonality of all mankind to have a heart, and secondly, there is a great contrast, a contrast uh, after we get the commonality resolved. So I'm going to look at this commonality of all mankind, and then I want to be able to show you the differences, and then there'll be some considerations. How did it get this way? So the first thing we realize is everyone has a heart. You remember, you already finished the verse from Proverbs 3 when, when he was just a, a, a dad. Proverbs 3, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He's appealing to anybody out there that is, that is a human being that has this heart. We find that that is the same in this particular text in Solomon's uh, swan song in chapter 10 here. He's finishing up and he says, hey, the wise have a heart and the fools have a heart. Everybody's got a heart. Scripture tells us this from the beginning. You know, you can go all the way back to Moses writing in Genesis that God made man in his own image. He gave him volition to be like him. But all of those, those attributes of man are wrapped up with this commonality of the heart. It's not talking about the four-chambered thing that's over, I think it's in here on the left side. You put your hand over your heart to do the pledge and things like that. Solomon is not focusing on the organ. He is focusing on individuals, old and young. From his position of wisdom as a grandfather, he looks and he says, everybody has a heart. The scripture does tell us a little bit more about these hearts that we have. Jeremiah told us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all. You know, when you realize that, uh, that his dad, David, David uh, Solomon's dad, said that my flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, my, my uh, drive in life, all that I am, not just my body, but all that personality, all the things that make me up. He says, they have limits. They're weak. And in Luke, Jesus actually told us about our hearts. He says in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, 
you can see that's where your heart already has been. Because our heart reveals the things we care about, the things we value, the things that are important to us. Solomon uses this heart many times. In fact, if you go through his three books of Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, and also of Ecclesiastes, he uses the term heart 122 times. It deals with a person's memory, motivation, wisdom, corruption, guilt, understanding, and even with a lot of emotions, the seat of the emotion of anger and of joy. You can read all about that as you look at those books. But our focus today is not just the fact that we have all this in common, but it's the fact that we have a contrast. Not everybody is the same. There's a stark contrast to those who ha- with those who have hearts. Although it is universal that we all have this divine imprint, the Imago Deo, with an eternal duration, in other words, all of us have a soul that will never die, there is a devastating contrast. The wise man inclines his heart to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. One has a wise heart and one doesn't. And so what we find in this contrast is there is a difference of description, there is a difference of direction, and there is a difference of inclination. And it's pretty obvious. Obviously, the description is the person who has a heart that is wise, and then the other one doesn't have a wise heart. He's called a fool. David told us in the Psalms that the fool is the one who says there is no God, or basically it's one who operates as if there is no God, or the one who operates as if he himself is God. But there is a difference, and you can see it in the description. Then you can find out, because there's a difference between the wise and the fools, you can see that they have a different direction. The way that Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes is that the wise one goes to the right, and the fool doesn't. It's right-handed. If you look at it, you can find out that it has that imagery of being right-handed. So if you're left-handed, you might feel slighted or disadvantaged. But the way that Solomon is writing, he's, he's not talking about a political right and a left, like liberals and conservatives. And he's not really talking about your, your right hand or your left hand. He's talking about that the, the righteous people follow what is right. The wise one goes in the right path. And by contrast, the one who is not wise doesn't go in that right path. And hence, to the left. Now, there's one more aspect of this. is because there is a different inclination. When you try to unpack the actual Hebrew words, it's not just that there's a right and a left, but there is this drive or this magnet that wants you to go. So if you have this wisdom, then you're going to be pulled in the right direction. But if you don't have this wisdom, it's almost like gravity, and it pulls you down, down, down. And that's where a lot of doubts come. Now, I told you that, that uh, Solomon, Solomon speaks in the Old Testament as one that didn't have an, uh, an equal. But in the New Testament, there was one greater than Solomon. And he had more wisdom than Solomon did. It was Jesus. And if you look at Matthew 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, you can see how Jesus takes the same concept that uh, chapter 10, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes says. And in chapter uh, 7 of Matthew, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But those who enter it are many. Do you see the parallel? There is a way that these people are going in. 
The Bible says it's a wide gate. It's an easy way. And he says that there's lots of people, many people are on the Broadway, and it leads to an interesting destination. It just doesn't lead to the left. It just doesn't lead away from the righteousness, but it actually leads to devastation. Or as the text Jesus said, it leads to destruction. Now Paul, excuse me, Solomon said this back in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but the ends thereof are the ways of death and destruction. So it's interesting how Jesus ends up quoting Solomon to be able to make the same point. That there is a path that many are on and it leads to destruction. But if you take verse 14, but there is another way. I will call this the right way. It is a narrow and right way. It's hard. It is not an easy path. But it leads not to destruction and devastation. It doesn't lead to hell. It leads to life, which is communion with God. And those who are on the right path are, sadly, the statistics say they're not going to be big numbers. They are few. Now, we've understood that, that there, are, there is commonalities and there's contrast. But with the remainder of the message, before we get to the Lord's table, I want to give some considerations. How do people get wise? And how do they get fools? How do they become fools? Which camp are you in? As we've already indicated, there's a lot of people in our culture today that are doubting everything. Well, let me put it plainly and simply. Everybody is born a fool. This morning, my little granddaughter, who was at the beach, uh, she was enjoying the beach, and the next moment, she was enjoying eating sand. We all wanted to shake our hands. Now, you all are smiling, of course. Um, but the parents were kind of like trying to scoot around and make sure she didn't eat too much of it because you're not supposed to eat sand. Okay, and the part of the point is, is why would she do this? Okay, the Bible says that we were born in sin. Everybody since Adam and Eve who have fallen from their, their correct status, their holy and upright status, every one of us has a sin nature and we are prone to wonder like sheep. Hence, uh, Isaiah said it so well, all we like sheep go astray. And we encourage people to, to, to do what they want. They lean on their own understanding. So they, the, the first point you should realize is everybody is a fool unless God intervenes. So God has to intervene. The wise get their wisdom not from their own minds, but from God. Wisdom is from above. If you go to, uh, um, to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you all know that for by grace we have been saved. In other words, we've been put on the right path, not because we deserve it, but because God initiated it. By grace, undeserved favor. For by grace we have been saved through this gift called faith. And faith is not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can buy. You can't sell it. Faith itself is the very gift from God. So in order to be wise, you need to have faith because Hebrews uh, chapter 11 says, without faith, you can't please God. You can't do the path with God. So then you think about it for a moment. And so how do you get faith? Since God has to give faith, God has also ordained the means that you would get faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes, get this, by hearing God's word proclaimed. 
by hearing God's word read, by studying the truth of scripture. Isaiah understood it back in chapter 55 where he said that, that when the word of God goes out, it doesn't just go out there and, and just does whatever, but it actually accomplishes God's purpose. God takes the word of God, his word, he sends out to communicate it. And with the working of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the word of God is made effectual. And faith is, is orchestrated within us. It's generated within us. So that's where faith comes from, by hearing the word of God. And we can understand that in Philippians 1, 6, Paul summarized it to the people in Philippi. And he says, look, God is the author and finisher of this. That's Revelation chapter 1. Philippians 1 says, I am sure of this, that God who begun a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. And it's really neat when you realize that God takes people who are fools and he makes them wise. And hence, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of this wisdom. And people who get this fear of God trust in the Lord with all their heart and they don't lean on anything else. Now I go to the contrast, the other consideration. So how do people become fools? Well, remember, they already are. Nobody has to be made a fool. You don't have to work at it. All of us will eat sand if we didn't know better. We just would. So the Bible ends up telling us that, uh, that we end up leaning on our own understanding because he's given us the image of God. So how do we get all messed up? Why do we doubt so much? Why, do we, why are we so prone to wonder? You see, if God doesn't give us the wisdom that takes us on the right path, then we will naturally go on the wrong path because it seems right to us. I come up with four categories of people that are, that are fools. There are those who don't know enough about God. They call themselves agnostic. They just don't know enough. Then there are another group that have an idea about God and they don't like it. Most of the reason I think that, that we would call them atheists is because A means they're against the theo, which is God. Atheists, they're against God. And I think honestly the reason they're atheists is because they don't want to have a God over them. They love theories like evolution because it eliminates even the concept of God creating. Hence, they don't like the, the, the people who read Genesis 1 through 12 because it, it, has, it holds them accountable. So atheists are ones who think they know enough to know that they don't want to be submissive to somebody that made them. So they are against God. There's a third category of people who are fools, and I call them adherents to religion. And these are people who have connected with some kind of faith concept or organization. They are religious and Sean will be preaching about this next week to some degree, they are adherents of some kind of a cult. Now, you can go through and you can do a, a Google search and you can find all kinds of people that used to be this that changed to this. They used to be that and they changed to this. One was, uh, was a surprise to me is that the guy that created Star Trek, the, uh, the, the TV show, Gene Roddenberry, used to be in a Methodist church, a Wesley Methodist church. And he's changed from that to being a secular humanist. And you can see that in his TV show. It's very interesting how people go from here to here to here to here to here. They have, and, but the third category is not just these adherents. The third is the adherents. But the fourth category is where I want to focus our time today. Because this is where it hits home for most of us. I call these group, this group the abandoners of the faith. 
If you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, you're going to find that there are people who have tasted, people who have experienced a little bit, but then they fall away. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, you're going to find that Jesus told the parable of the seeds that were sown. And uh, some of the seeds fell on the, on the road, and some fell on the rocky turf, and some fell on good soil. But you know what happened to the seeds on the rocky surf, turf? It looked like they took root. And the Bible says immediately the little plant sprung up. But it did say that when the sun rose and it became hot, the little plant withered because it did not have access to the nourishment that it needed. It didn't have deep roots. These abandoners of the faith, they, according to, uh, um, to some of the New Testament writers, they have ears to hear, but they don't hear. They have eyes to see, and they don't see. One of the ways that this abandoning takes place is called deconstruction. And that's why in our sermon series today, and why I have it in the front here, is that we want to, uh, the myth of a deconstructed Christianity. This is one of the ways that people have tried to secularize Christianity. That is, you take Christianity and you blend it. You try to work it together, and, and therefore it becomes more palatable. To some degree, I said Solomon had tried everything. How do I know this? Because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and those wives came from all around the world. If you wanted to find a globalist, it was Solomon. He could actually go and talk to somebody from almost every country in the world because most of the countries had had a desire to have a relationship with that golden age of, of God's kingdom there, and so they would send their one of the greatest treasures they would have, which would be the monarch's daughter. And so you realize that Solomon had access to all kinds of information from all around the world. And he got to see the best and the worst of the Asian culture, of the, of the uh, uh, European culture, I imagine, I don't know if he had any, any from the North America or South America. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he had African folks there, and he had all this information, and he had tried it and seen it. And that's why I was looking at it like, a, like going to a Golden Corral. Solomon could be take his plate up to each of the counters and pick what he wanted. The best of each of the different religions that, that are out there in the world. And Solomon, as an old man, says, hey... This is all vanity. It's all empty. And that's why he's in chapter 10 telling us the, the people who fear God, they go to the right, but everybody else, they go to the left. They lean on their own understanding. When people lean on their own understanding, they end up abandoning the truth. They end up, even if they've tasted it or seen it, or, or been around it, uh, I often say they know about God, but they don't like what they've seen. There was a recent TikTok video that went out that went pretty viral. There was a gal that was 23 years old, and she grew up in the church, probably an evangelical church, and uh, she's 23 years old, and she's been listening to all the different voices. I think the, the secular university was teaching her, as well as some of the social media, and she was getting woke. She was waking up to what's going on, and she said... I'm not one of those people. And so she wanted to undo Christianity. It would be like she had the string pulled on her. And so she decided that she would get unbaptized. 
Now, I don't know how you get unbaptized, but her video went pretty viral. She apparently, you know, didn't use a lot of water. I didn't actually watch it. But what ended up happening was is she wanted to kind of like hit the reverse button. And so when she did her little ceremony to be getting out of Christianity, she just did the Lord's Prayer backwards. And you know what? 60,000 people gave it a thumbs up. How exciting it is to become an unchristian, to be delivered from the bondage of Christianity. So I wrap it up with a few things. Did she really lose salvation? The answer to this question, and I ask all new members, if you come to the new members class, you'll hear it. Uh, you can't lose what you don't have. Okay, if, you, if you've never received the forgiveness of Christ, then you'll never lose it. You might know about Jesus, you might know about the cross, you might know about church, but you really don't know Christ. In Romans 11, verse 8, as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Isaiah had said that in chapter 29, 10, for the Lord had poured out upon you a, deep, a, a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. You see, people end up doing what they want to do. And as I have been unpacking this deconstructionism, is that people have just simply leaned on their own understanding. If you go around, even in, in Delaware today, you will find that some churches have ministers that are trying to teach people to deconstruct. Instead of build things up together, they're trying to pull them apart into smaller pieces and then examine the pieces. At the beach, I had some of Charlie's uh, giant Legos. And I had a little building built with about seven pieces. And of course, when you see them all put together, it looks like a little church. But when you pull all the big Lego blocks apart, they just look like Lego blocks. There's no excitement about them or anything. I mean, there's creativity. You could maybe build something else. You could build back better, I guess. But the, the thing that you would see when you look at these things is, huh, you don't see the whole picture. You only see what you imagine what's according to your own imagination. People today are now, instead of trusting in the Lord and listening to his word, they have jettisoned those things and they would rather lean on their own understandings. As I was doing some research, I was saddened. Many clergy, they write these things and they put on the social media that they wish they could get out of church, but they don't know what other skills they have made me feel bad. I'm a pastor. Do I not have any other skills? But some people become a clergyman and they stay a clergyman because they don't know anything else. They think it's an easy life. Now, what a sad state of affairs to be a shepherd that needs shepherding, to be one who needs to be introduced to the true shepherd. Now, but even sadder is when you're sitting in the pews and you don't have a clue about what is true and what isn't. As I met that one gal at the beach service today, she was afraid to come and sit on the sand with us because she was afraid of what kind of church we might be, especially in Rehoboth. Now, when we had the, the cross up there and the pastor's holding a Bible up front, there are some clear messages that we start out with. And uh, we named the thing Sunrise at the Beach because we're talking about the S-O-N. And we clearly identify who we are. And I actually was wearing a hat that said, Jesus is my boss. 
I think it's said a little bit. But when people are left to their own understanding, and if you're left to your own, if you've never really met Christ, then you're going to wonder about some things. I found a website that listed several progressive deconstructionist traits. And when I read these to you, I pray that you won't have them. The first one, they said, is that the person who is prone to wonder that lean on their own understanding is inclined to subjectivity, to mysticism, to, to a, uh, a sense of uh, being swayed by emotion and emotionalism. They have compassion but fail to practice any discernment. They're directed by subjectivity. They just feel certain things. These folks that are feeling it or not feeling it. They can come and go depending on whether it's popular or not. Whereas Christians are not free to do that. We're not supposed to be tossed to and fro with whatever wind blows, but we are supposed to be led by the Spirit of God. The second characteristic, the second trait, is a low view of Scripture. They, they have a low view of Scripture, and when God's Word is attacked, uh, they feel shame and censored because they would rather compromise. Uh, they, they would rather, as the scripture says, they would fall away because they don't want to stand on that truth because it seems too harsh, too judgmental, too difficult. They may use the word, but they'll twist it. They'll be able to morph it into what they wanted to say so that even if you're listening as a believer, you might even think that they're okay. But they have a low view of scripture Whereas we need to believe that the word of God stands for sure, forever. The third thing is a lack of concern for sin and its consequences. You see, we're going to come to the Lord's table in a few moments. People that don't care about sin will tell you to go and experiment a little bit more. In fact, you could search the world over and try to find something that will satisfy you. And even if it's bad, it's no big deal. If you look at a lot of the celebrities, they have abandoned some of the things they grew up with because it's not popular, it's not consistent, and it's not enjoyed. So in order to stay popular, in order to have the big following, these, end up, these people end up, um, they end up trivializing sin, even to the point now that you can find even pastors that don't even think they have to leave the pulpit even if they're in immorality. Why? Because they don't view sin as being that big of a deal. If you look fourthly, there are those who don't take any kind of correction well. And basically they, don't, they, are, um, they just minimize it or they blame somebody else. These people are not inclined to submit to scripture either because, hey, it's everybody else's fault. The fifth characteristic is the lack of a foundation of God's word. It's not only that they have a low view of scripture, but it's probably because they don't view the scripture as being so important, they couldn't finish many verses. They might even be inclined to think that, uh, um, that they could create verses. Because since they don't know the Bible, they wouldn't know if it's in there or if it's not. There are those that, intend, that tend to be intellectual, they are what uh, the, the Old Testament called scoffers. These are folks that think that they've arrived. 
They, they have focused so much on intellectual knowledge and winning arguments that the truth often fails to penetrate their hearts. There are those, the number seven, who lack a love for truth. As a result, their love lacks any kind of truth. This always leads them to whatever's popular, and that's why they're easily deceived and uh, they're easily falling into the camp of others. That's why they are adherents to other things. Those who give a low value to discernment and those who live in the echo chambers. And this is a little bit of a fear factor from my standpoint for you. It says the problem of an echo chamber type culture is especially pronounced in Hollywood, in various elite groups, in certain blogs, internet groups, local communities, could even be in some church groups, even some community groups. You almost get groupthink, and you stop thinking for yourself. It's a pattern of thought characterized by deception, and uh, it's really sad when that kicks in. Just a few more characteristic traits. Those who want the world to like them are inclined to not stand firm. You'll rationalize in your head to say, well, if I do this, people won't like me. Somebody will say something negative. They'll make an accusation to say, you're mean, you're harsh, you're difficult, you're ugly, you're a homophobe, you're judgmental. What are the other words that they use? Have you ever received any of them? Or does everybody think you're nice? Does everybody think you're wonderful? Have you orchestrated that? Is that because you, don't, uh, you want the world to love you? Well, you remember, if you're a true believer, don't be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed. Don't be like everybody else, but be different. We're supposed to be lights in the darkness, not uh, lights that are covered with a lampshade. There are just a couple more traits here. Uh, there are those who are not fully yielded to God. If you go back to the uh, New Testament, Paul wrote about this in 2 Timothy 4. He said, there are stiff-necked, rebellious people. They are prideful. They cling to their own, um, to what they want, and they refuse to surrender. You can read this throughout Scripture. And there's some Christians that get into that list. Well, even one guy named Jonah. But if you... Uh, if, if you this stubbornness is because they would rather lean on their own understanding because they think they got it better. There are those, and you found them in this world, that would just measure everything by good works. If you look at a church and it doesn't do nice things, if we don't feed the hungry, if we don't give shelter to those who are cold or too hot, if we don't offer the cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, then you're worthless. Your religion is vain. And you take the one verse in James and you just kind of dismiss Christianity. You say, be warmed and be filled, and you don't even give people a blanket. Those kind of people will often lean on their own understanding and say, I don't want that. But this final illustration kind of ties it all together. Those who have had bad experiences with the church. Have you? I grew up in the church. Every day was wonderful. My dad was the preacher. Everybody loved his sermons. Everybody that came to church stayed. You know my nose is growing. <laughs> you can get an interview with uh, the other seven brothers and sisters that I have in my family, and they will tell you how lovely church people are. Did you know I'm just talking about you? 
What is it that makes some people justify walking away from Christianity, walking away from the institution of the church, because they look at us and they say, we are phonies, we are hypocrites. We're the ones that don't do the good works. We're the ones that are judgmental because we hang on to scripture and we won't compromise. We're the ones that make them feel so bad because they're experimenting sexually. They're doing this and this and we're telling them, don't do it. If you can see what's going on, the folks that are leaving Christianity, they never had Christ. My concern is for those of you that are sitting here today who have tasted of the good word. Are you good soil where the root takes place and goes deep? Or are you the rocky soil that is just playing church for a little while until the government or until the globalists or until your family puts a little pressure on you and says, don't go to church anymore. Don't participate in that anymore. Those people are freaks. They are crazy. They are just like this handmaiden's tale, or they are going to judge you, and they're all radical. You know what I'm talking about. Why do you know? It's because it's already happened, and Solomon told us there's nothing new under the sun. I would say, one of my notes was this. It could be, that if the Lord tarries for another 20 years and we finally get to that fateful year of 2050, all the projections tell us that the, the country is not going to look anything like it is now. The things that we've held dear are going to all be erased. The things that we consider normal won't be normal anymore. Technology will take over all these jobs. And what are we going to be? We're going to have all these things injected into us and they're going to tell us where we can go, how much sun we can take. It's going to be really interesting how, how technology probably dictates to us how we can live and probably the cost of gas, if there is still gas, how far you can drive and what things you can do. You'll monitor your own speech because everything will be uh, checked and there'll be cameras everywhere. Now, that's 20, 2050. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Things are changing. The gospel will never change. In the word cloud, if you could bring that up again, there is a word that I have in there called covenantal. The word covenant is that God entered into a covenant with us. And when you realize that is so very important, because he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I guarantee it. I make a covenant, an oath in blood. Now, when God made this covenant with Abraham, you can read about it in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17. When God entered into this covenant, Abraham wasn't able to keep his end of the deal because he was a fool too. Until God made him a wise man, Abraham was prone to wander just like the rest of us until God changed our hearts and gave us a, made us a new creation. But when God entered into a covenant with Christians, he said to them, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And even when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, I, the good shepherd, will, will have a rod and a staff. I will comfort you. I will get you there. You see, 
It's a beautiful thing to be at peace with God. God entered into that covenant and this cross in front of us is the second part of that, the bond in blood. If we were God, we would do without all of that crucifixion stuff, wouldn't we? Who really wanted to see some guy stripped and beaten and mocked, somebody falsely accused, somebody that was supposed to be the redeemer, the one who could multiply bread and he could walk on water? Why him having to have all this ugliness? You know, if we were standing there leaning on our own understanding, I think we would walk away. The king of glory was despised and rejected of men. He took on sorrows. By his stripes and wounds, we are healed. See, Solomon was right. The wise go to the right. They go to the way of the cross. They go to Jesus. And if you go to Jesus, you will always have that wisdom. We're coming to the Lord's table today and there's a great divide. Those of you that are Christians and those of you that are not. This is only for Christians. It'll be served as it comes through. But if you're not a believer, don't partake. Because you'll eat and drink damnation to yourself. But those of you that are believers, you understand that this is the wisdom of God. Even the salvation. Paul told Timothy that you have learned the scriptures and they were able to make you wise to Christ and his great salvation. Let us pray. And as the elders would come forward as I pray. Lord Jesus, we have gathered here in church to spend time with you. We've spent time to hearing the word of God preached. And we pray that the spirit of God will take the word that's been proclaimed and, and work it in us so that we might have this faith to be able to apprehend, to be able to grasp God, to be able to have ears that actually hear your spirit's voice, to have eyes that see the fingerprints of God and even see the ugliness of this wooden cross and see the beauty behind it. That the prince of glory was put to death there to fulfill the covenant. We couldn't keep the covenant. We couldn't live the perfect life. And so you came to live it in our place. And in exchange, you gave us the righteousness that you alone deserved, imputing it to our account. Lord, I thank you for driving us in the right way. And I pray that you will give us the ability to go forth from this place and tell others about Jesus, that they too might go in the right path, in the way, in the truth, and in the life to be able to get to the Father through Christ alone. In Jesus' name.